Let me invite you to take your Bibles to, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at just two verses today. Just two verses. Now, I bet I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, good, it's going to be a short sermon. <laughs> if you've been coming here for a while. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. They're two short verses, but they are full of good news. 1 Peter chapter 2. Starting in verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning I want you to imagine a scenario with me. Imagine that you get invited by a friend to hang out with, with them one Friday evening. They tell you, hey, just meet me downtown. There's a certain spot. They give you directions. All right, so you say yes. Just kind of assume it's going to be a fun night. Maybe a few close friends. Probably doing something, I don't know, grab dinner. Don't think much of it. Then Friday night comes. You show up. And you realize as you're, as you're getting parked, you realize, oh, that's interesting. They wanted me to meet them right by the convention center. Okay. And as you walk up, meeting your friend outside the convention center, you're still, still dressed from work, so maybe you got, you're dressed a little nicer. At the same time, you see two things. One you see your friend wearing something really, really weird. And behind him, you see a giant sign that says, Welcome to the Indianapolis Star Trek Convention. So as you walk through the door with your friend, still reeling from what's going on, you suddenly find yourself surrounded, not by a few intimate, close friends, but by a few thousand die-hard Star Trek fans, mostly dressed in some bizarre costumes. And all around you are exhibits and speakers and discussions and stores selling everything Star Trek imaginable. Now, there may be one or two of you here that are like, that's awesome. And I'm happy for you. But if you are anything like me, that sounds incredibly terrifying. Why? Because I know nothing about Star Trek and don't really want to. And so as I'm there and I'm watching and listening to the people all around me who are wearing things that look crazy to me, they're talking about things I don't understand, they're making jokes that I really don't get, they're arguing about things. Well, no, this episode was the best. No, that was the best episode. That make no sense to me. I quickly realize one thing very clearly in this scenario. I don't belong here. I don't fit in with the people around me. And I'm sure they know it too. I am clearly in that moment an outsider. Now, I realize that's a bit of a silly example. But I think we can all relate to that feeling of not belonging. 
Maybe you've gone to a party or an event. Maybe you were totally dressed the wrong way. Or you realize when you get there, these people all share an interest that you have nothing to do with. There's something. You've walked into a scenario or you've been in an environment where you realize, I do not fit in here. Well, as Peter has already told us in this letter, as followers of Jesus, we are all sojourners and exiles here in this world. And as sojourners and exiles, we'll always feel a bit out of place. We'll never quite feel like we belong in the culture around us. And not only will the culture often be different than us, at times, it will also be against us. I mean, I, don't, I didn't know how to incorporate that into the image but if you can imagine now, it's not just that the Star Trek people are very different than me, but suddenly they all start mocking me. They start being like doing hostile things to me. So now it's not, I'm, not, I'm not just thinking, oh, this is strange. Now I'm like, oh, no, this is dangerous. There will be a hostility against us because as Christians, we are foreigners wherever we live. So as exiles, how are we to live in the midst of a foreign and sometimes hostile culture. That's what our passage is about today. And when it comes to how we think about the way Christians should relate to the world around us, before we get to Peter, let's step back and remember that Jesus had some things to say about this. He gave us some helpful categories when he prayed for us in John 17. See, Jesus recognized that as his followers, we would face hostility. He, he knew that. So what did he have to say about our relation to the world? Listen to John 17, starting in verse 14. Jesus was praying to the Father, and he said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So what's Jesus saying here? I don't know if you heard it, but there's two things that are true about all who belong to Jesus. One, we are not of this world. We're different. We don't fit. But two... We are sent into the world. Or as we often say, we are to be in the world but not of it. Well, what I think we're going to see this morning is that Peter's actually going to say something very similar in our passage. He's going to tell us how we should live in relation to this world around us. And as we get to these two verses, this is actually kind of a, a turning point in the book. See, as we start this new section, up until now, so he had a couple of verses at the beginning that were just kind of a, an introduction, a welcome. But starting in verse 3 all the way till now in 2.11, he's focused on our being called to salvation as exiles. He's praised God for it. He's unpacked it, what kind of people we now are and what kind of people we are together. He's just focused on the salvation as exiles. God making us this, these exiles by causing us to be born again to new lives in Christ. See, we once were at home in the world, but now he says, because you've been born again, because God gave you this whole new life, it's not that you've changed your location, it's that you've changed who you are. God has made you different, 
And now you're a sojourner in exile because you belong to a new people and a new nation. And you have a new homeland. So now, now that Peter's laid that out, says, okay, we got that. We know that who we are. Now he's going to focus his attention on how do you live that out as exiles in a foreign land. He spent all this time making sure we understand how we became exiles, what it means, what kind of people we ought to be. He says, here now, here's what your lives should look like. How do we relate to the world around us? And I need to say up front, today we're going to focus, because the text does, on how we're called to live. So there's some commands here. There's some imperatives. This is what you ought to do. But we need to remember that these calls to live a certain way are all built on a gospel foundation that we've already seen in the letter. Remember, Peter's writing a letter. So we're not covering chapter 1 through here, but Peter's already made sure they know they've been ransomed from the worthless ways of life that they had. They've already been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. By God's great mercy, they've been caused to be born again to a living hope. They've been given an eternal, imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. It's being kept in heaven for them. They're being guarded for it by faith. Peter's already established all this. So what we need to be clear on is that as we talk about how we are to live a certain way, we're not told to live this way so that God will love us. We are told to live this way because he already does. We are his people. He's already done that work. So you need to hear it through a gospel lens. And Peter reminds us of that in verse 11. When what does he say? He calls us beloved. It's not a throwaway word. We, the ones who one verse ago in verse 10, were once not a people. Once had received no mercy. He says, now. Because of the unbelievable work of God in the gospel, now you have received mercy, and now you are God's beloved people. He says, now, beloved, because of your status as God's dearly loved sojourners and exiles, now live a certain way. So, the question we're going to deal with this morning is how? How are dear exiles supposed to relate to the hostile culture around us. Just two points, two ways. Fight hard, live beautifully. You can remember that. Fight hard, live beautifully. I had so much confidence in you, I didn't even make a slide that had the two points. Now, if you want to cheat, it is on the cover of your bulletin as the title. But fight hard, live beautifully, okay? So let's unpack this. Let's look at the first thing Peter tells us as beloved sojourners and exiles. Look at verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So the first thing Peter says here <clears throat> is that when it comes to our relationship to the world, there's a battle to be fought. But it's not the one many people think of. See, often when we think about how, we, how Christians ought to engage with the culture, many people tend to think in terms of us versus them. We need to fight back against that unbelieving culture around us. We even have a term for it called the culture wars. But the fight Peter has in mind here is much different. Did you notice this? Because this battle is not out there. 
This battle's in here. Peter's saying the greatest danger we face is not from the culture, but from ourselves. Another way to say it is I have more trouble in my life with Dan Weller than with any other person in the world. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I think you know what I mean. My biggest fight is not against the people I see on the news or see on the internet. It's with the one I see in the mirror. Now, why do I say that? Well, what does Peter say this fight is all about? Who is the enemy we're facing? Look down. The passions of the flesh. That's what wages war against our souls. Now, that word passions, it's the same word. It's just the word for desires. It's like, and I think desires is more helpful because we hear passions and we think it's something exotic, something, I don't know if I even have passions. You have desires. In fact, we all have desires. We're going to see how central to our lives desires are. What Peter's talking about here, he said, what's going on inside you? There's a battle of desires. Now, before we get into the battle, the first thing I want you to notice here, don't miss this, is that Peter is telling us that those who are born again, who are living as followers of Jesus, they're not exempt from sinful desires. Did you catch that? Who's he talking to in verse 11? Beloved sojourners and exiles. And yet, he tells them that the, there are desires of the flesh inside them that are waging war against their souls. And actually, to go even further, the fact that there is a war being waged in them is proof that they're born again. Because before we were born again in Christ, there was no fighting. It's not that there were no sinful desires, it's just that there was no war. We simply followed the sinful desires. Ephesians 2.3 says, We all once lived in the passion, same word, of our flesh, following the course of this world. In other words, we simply went wherever our sinful desires took us. There's no fight, no struggle, because isn't that what the world tells us? Follow your heart. Be true to you. Do what you want. And that's what we did, all of us. But when God, in his great mercy, caused us to be born again and gave us a new life, he also gave us new desires. Desires to please God. And when he did that, that began the war inside of us. The battle between the old desires of the flesh that still dwell in us and the new desires of the Spirit. Galatians 5 tells us about this battle. It says, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you hear the battle? The desires are opposed to each other. There's a clash. There's a war inside of you. The Christian life is a battle of desires. It's not mainly, hear me, mainly. It's not mainly a battle to do the right things. The Christian life is mainly a battle to want the right things. Because what we do flows out of what we want. 
And friends, we have to get this if we're going to understand the daily fight of faith and how it is that we live and grow as Christians. Because what wages war against our souls and seeks to destroy them, he says, is our fleshly desires. That's where the battle is. Listen to James 1. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. James is saying, why do we sin? Is it because of some external stimuli? Like, if, well, you keep in bad company, or you were exposed to that, or you're, you're doing this out here. He says, no, 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 the reason we sin is because of wrong desires inside us. Friends, nobody sins because they have to. Nobody makes us sin. We sin because we want to. And that's the problem. And this is massively important. In fact, I want you to see how important our desires are and how these passions or desires of our flesh are the battleground for the war of our souls. What does it look like as these desires wage war against us? I'm going to give you just a few places in Scripture that we see this war being waged. One way it looks like is it looks like a desire to have more money. 1 Timothy 6, 9. But those who desire, same word, to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's one way they're waging war against your soul. When you find that craving saying, oh man, if I just made more money, if I could just buy that other thing, if we could just afford, he's saying, that's war. In James 4, we're told the reason we get angry with each other and have conflicts is because of these same desires. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That's why we get mad at each other. Because we have something that the other person wants. And so we don't actually maybe physically kill them, but we kill them in our hearts. We murder them. We, we get angry. He says that anger, that fighting, that's war. What else does it look like? It looks like a desire to seek sexual satisfaction outside of marriage. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, God's will is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of Lust, desire, same word, like the Gentiles who do not know God. All those cravings to look at or be with someone that you ought not, that's war. These passions are waging war, he says, by letting your desire for other things choke out your desire for God and the gospel. Mark 4, Jesus tells the parable of the sower, and he says, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. They enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Are you seeing this? There is a war in its desires. In fact, I'll give you one more. This is one we don't tend to think of, about how these desires wage war in our souls. It even looks like your desires to find teachers to listen to podcasts, to read books, to go to churches where instead of hearing what is true from God's word, you find people who will say what you want them to say to make your lifestyle okay. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Do you see this? These desires of the flesh for money, for sex, for anger, for stuff, for people who will tell us what we want to hear. In all these ways and more, the passions of our flesh are waging war against our souls. Peter's not even using language. Like, we talk about struggles or challenges. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't talk that way about wars. And these desires are what the culture around us tell us, that'll make you happy. That will satisfy you. That's why apart from Jesus, we all simply follow along with them. Why wouldn't we? Because we feel at home in the world. We belong. We see what the world around us values and loves, and we fit in because, well, apart from Jesus, we love that too. But when we are given new life through the gospel, that's when we become aliens and exiles. Our desires no longer fit in. We've got these new desires. Suddenly, like, we desire holiness. Where'd that come from? We desire to read the Bible. We desire to go to church, to be around Christians. We, we desire to pray. What is that? But even though those new desires are there, there's still a strong pull for us to fit into the world around us. There are still passions of the flesh that want us to blend in and be just like the world around us. Those passions promise we'll find satisfaction in all these other things, but what we see in Scripture is they always let us down. That's why John tells us in 1 John 2, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, that's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Hear this. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. He's saying, look, those desires, all that the world offers you, they're passing away. They won't last. But if you do the will of God, you abide forever. He says these passions, not only are they unlasting, they're deadly. Seeking to choke out the spiritual life of your soul. So, with this war of desires raging in our souls, again, what do we do? What does Peter say? He says we should abstain from those passions. Now the word for abstain here doesn't mean simply not do something. It means to distance yourself from it. To run away to flee, to avoid it at all costs. Don't get anywhere near that thing. So when the desires of the flesh wage war against us, Peter's saying, don't just give in. We fight hard. Well, what does the fight look like? Well, let's let God's word tell us. And I'm intentionally giving you lots of Bible in a sermon because I want you to hear how God defines these struggles, not how I do. So what does this fight look like? First Peter already told us, and back in chapter 1, verse 14, he said, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So step one, don't be conformed. Don't let yourself be shaped by the things around you and just say, well, I guess that's what everybody else is doing. They seem to like it. I'll let myself. Don't be conformed. Instead, 
Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put that off. But don't just put off that old self. Romans 13, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put off your old way that's been corrupted through deceitful desires and put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. Don't let it have a foothold. Don't say, well, a little bit won't hurt. Don't let it have any square inch of your life so that you will obey its desires. Instead, Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Romans 8, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is a war being waged. Do you realize it? And how do we fight this battle of desires? We fight desire with desire. Do things that feed your desire for Jesus and his glory. As Peter told us, crave the milk of the word. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Read your Bible. Pray. Talk to other Christians. Come to church. Tell others about Christ. Sing worship songs. Do whatever you can to dump gasoline on however little a spark you have of desire for Jesus. Fan it into flame. Put every accelerant on it that you can and say, I'm going to feed this thing. I want it to burn hot and bright and long. And anything that dampens or smolders your affection and desire for Jesus, get it out of there. Anything that makes your soul shrink and shrivel. And you know, go back to those things we talked about that wage war. When you're focused, when you're locked in on having more, money, greed. Are you, are you thinking grand thoughts about God? When you're in the throes of sexual temptation, do you have expansive, joy-filled visions of who Jesus is? No. Why? It shrivels your soul down to the size of that desire. So he says, get rid of that. Abstain. Instead, feed it. Feed anything that makes you want Jesus. If you want to know, should I do this or should I not? It's really as simple as saying, does this help me love Jesus more or does it make me less love Jesus? It's really that easy. Chapelwood, there is a war being waged against your soul. So fight hard. Fight in the power of the Spirit. Fight in the victory of Christ. Fight in the love of God. Fight hard and fight together. Ask for help. This is not meant to be a one-on-one -on -one battle. But whatever you do, do not coast. Do not simply blend in to the world around you. Beloved, as sojourners and exiles, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Remember, your biggest battle is not with the culture, but with your own desires. So fight hard. That's the first thing Peter urges us as beloved exiles. 
As we engage with the world around us, he says, fight these sinful desires. But that still leaves the question, okay, that's good. That's a helpful reorientation. I know I need to do war in here. But how are we to relate to the unbelieving culture around us? Well, that's where Peter goes next. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak of you, speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, notice something really important here. Peter fully acknowledges the reality that we live in a hostile, unbelieving society. But he doesn't tell us to abstain from it. He doesn't call for retreat. He doesn't urge us to withdraw to a bubble. Instead, even though we're not to be like the world, he still calls us to be in the world. He talks about our conduct here among the Gentiles. He's assuming that we're interacting with them and having relationships with them. And how does he tell us to live among them? He tells us to keep our conduct honorable. So what does that mean? Well, first, that word conduct, it simply means way of life. It's the way you act and live. It's what people see when they look at your life. When they want to say, what's their conduct? All they're saying is, how does that person live? It's your actions, your attitudes, your decisions, your responses. So what kind of lives does Peter say we should live among the Gentiles? Honorable. Or your translation might say, good. And those are both true and right translations, but they don't quite capture what Peter's saying here. Because this word doesn't simply mean morally good or just simply doing the right thing. There's another word for that that he's going to use a paragraph later. Instead of just morally good, this word has more the flavor of morally beautiful. There's a beauty to this way of living. It's attractive. It's compelling. It's winsome. People see this kind of life, and there's just something about it that appeals to them. That it draws them in. There's, they can't quite articulate it, but man, that, that life is different. And there's something good about it. This is really significant for us as we think about how we engage with culture. Because Peter does not call for us to boycott the world but to live beautiful lives in the world. Yes, we have to be vigilant to guard our hearts and fight hard against the passions of our flesh that would make us look just like the world around us. Yes, but when it comes to how we live in the world, we are to think of our lives not as bunkers to keep us safe from the world, but as billboards to show to the world. We are to live beautiful lives that show how beautiful our God is. So what would that look like? I keep saying beautiful, but let's, that's just a, an ethereal concept. Let's flesh that out. What would this kind of beautiful life look like? I want you to dream with me a little bit. I'm going to give you a start, but I would actually give you some homework. This is a great thing to talk about together later. Talk about it over lunch. And I want you to think from the Bible. What would the beautiful life look like? Here's a start. Here's what I think that beautiful life would look like. It would be a life marked by love for others. One that treats all people with dignity and kindness. 
one that cares for the neglected and befriends the lonely and the outcast. It's a life that is generous, generously giving time to others, generously helping others, generously sharing their possessions, their money, their home. It would be a life that is patient with others, even when others mistreat them, that believes the best about others, that seeks to understand them, that is slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry. One that's quick to admit when it's wrong and quick to forgive when it has been wronged. It's a life that is faithful and reliable, one that can be counted on. It's a life that's honest and trustworthy, a life that is gentle and humble, that doesn't focus on itself or boast about how great it is, but always looks to build others up and encourage them. A life that doesn't just insist on its own way, but puts the needs and interests of others ahead of its own. It's a life that speaks the truth in love, that's willing to say what we need to hear, not just what we want to hear, but to do so with gentleness, respect, and compassion. One that loves to talk about Jesus and is always pointing people back to the goodness of God and the gospel. It's a life of peace that knows its sins have been forgiven in Christ. A life of peace where even in the midst of trials, there's a calm assurance about it that defies understanding. It's a life of hope that knows for the Christian, the best is always yet to come. And it's a life of joy, filled with laughter and a gladness that is out of the reach of any adversity. Doesn't that sound beautiful? In short, it's the Christian life. It's the life that God has caused us to be born again to live. It's the life that Jesus died to win for us. And it's the life that the Spirit now empowers us to live. As we engage with the world around us, Peter's calling us to live this kind of beautiful life. Now, Peter's not naive. He doesn't say that if we live this way, everyone around us will think that's awesome. And they'll love it and be like, man, that's so cool that you live that way. He's not naive. In fact, he promises people will speak against us as evildoers. Do you see that? I think this is really helpful if we realize that culture accusing Christians of doing wrong and being evil is not a new thing. Sometimes I hear Christians talk as though it's surprising, shocking, and appalling that an unbelieving world would treat us this way. Friends, the Bible promises it. Why are we surprised? Or often people make it seem like culture accusing Christians of being bad people is a relatively new thing that the liberals have invented in the last decade or two. Quite the contrary. There are records from Roman historians Suetonius and Tacitus in the 100s AD talking about Christians as being followers of an evil superstition, about them hating mankind because they didn't do what the rest of culture did. Christians were seen back then as backwards, hateful, and dangerously evil. 
That was 2,000 years ago. And it's been that way ever since. That's why we shouldn't be surprised when they speak against us as evildoers today because we believe that gender is an unchangeably good gift of God. Or surprised when they speak against us because we believe that God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Or because they speak against us because we believe that all people are made in God's image and therefore any form of racial injustice is wrong. Or when they speak against us because we believe that what's inside of a pregnant woman is not merely a clump of cells or a fetus, but is a human life bearing the imprint and image of its creator. Or perhaps most of all, we shouldn't be surprised when they speak against us because we believe that all mankind has sinned against this creator God and deserves his wrath for their sins. And that the only way to be saved from his wrath is through faith in the death and resurrection of his son in the place of sinners. Of course they're going to speak against us. But how do we respond when they do? What's our counterattack? Is it to lob verbal grenades back at them? To blast them on Facebook? To really get them? What does Peter say? What's, what's our response? He says, live beautiful lives. Show them a different and better way. Why? So that... When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good, same word, beautiful. When they speak against you as evildoers, they'll see your beautiful deeds and they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, what we're after is the glory of God. We want them to see the beautiful lives God has given us and is empowering us to live so that when they see our beautiful lives, it will point them back to how beautiful our God is. Our lives, again, are billboards to point others back to our God. And Jesus said the same thing, right? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good, beautiful works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. In fact, the New Testament is very concerned with how we live as Christians and how it reflects on God and the gospel. We can't control what others think about us. Or how they respond. But we are able to live in such a way that commends Jesus and the gospel. We want to rightly display the beauty of God who saved us and changed us. One application I think this has for us is that how we live impacts more than just us. Our words and actions are creating a picture to others of what Christ and Christians are like. And the picture we create affects other Christians as well. Have you ever tried to talk to someone about Jesus and found that they already had a laundry list of things, that, ways they've been wrongly harmed and mistreated by those who profess the name of Jesus? Do people quickly point to the examples of those who profess to be followers of Christ and yet do atrocities. Somebody has already been acting in a way and representing and creating these bad pictures of Jesus and the gospel that now you have to try to overcome. So one question for us is, how is your way of living around unbelievers affecting other Christians? 
Are you living a beautiful life among the unbelievers around you? If somebody were to try to share the gospel with one of your coworkers, would they find that there's hurdles and barriers because they say, nope, I know this guy at work. He's the biggest jerk I know. He's, he's always talking about how he's being a Christian, but he does this, he does this, he does this. Are there beautiful deeds in your life for others to see so that they will one day glorify God? There's a story, can't remember the name of which Native American chief it was now, but when some white settlers moved in near where they were, some people started trying to talk to them about God and the gospel. And so they arranged a meeting. The chief met with some of the soldiers And he just laid it out very bluntly. This chief told him, he said, look, we understand that your people are telling us that there's one way to worship this great spirit of ours and that you find it in this book. We're willing to listen to you, but keep in mind that we know our neighbors. We know these people who've been living here, these white people. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna watch and see, does this God of yours cause them to treat Native Americans differently? Will they stop lying to us? Will they stop cheating us? He said, that's how we will know whether this God you present to us is true. And it's the same way among many of our unbelieving neighbors and coworkers. They'll say, you can tell me about your God, but if I don't see a changed life, what basis do I have to believe it? We want to live beautiful lives so that they glorify God on the day of visitation. What's that, what's that last part mean? On the day of visitation. Well, it means on the day when the Lord Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead. As we live our beautiful lives among unbelievers, it will lead them to glorifying God one of two ways. Either they will continue to reject God in spite of seeing the beautiful lives we lead before them. They will continue to reject God so that on the last day when God is revealed in all his beauty and all his glory, They will have no excuse. But they will have to glorify God by acknowledging his mercy that he provided living illustrations through you for them to look at that they stubbornly ignored and also acknowledging his justice in judging them because they did reject him. Or, on the other hand, what we hope and what we pray for is that as we lead these beautiful lives, among the unbelievers around us, they will be one means God uses to draw some of them out of the darkness and into his marvelous light so that on the last day, they will glorify God with us, beside us as brothers and sisters because our goal is not to defeat those around us, it's to win them. We want them to worship King Jesus with us. But either way, whether in salvation or in judgment, all will glorify God on the day of visitation. And part of the means of God being glorified on that day is by our living beautiful lives. So let me close this way. Church, remember, we are exiles and sojourners here. We don't fit in, and we're not supposed to. So abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. 
But don't run away from the world. Instead, keep your conduct honorable among them so that when they see your good deeds, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, dear exile, fight hard and live beautifully. Would you pray with me? Father, may you help us to do just that. Thank you that it's true that we are beloved in your son and that by being a part of your kingdom and our heavenly country, we are now exiles and sojourners here. Would you help us to abstain from these passions of the flesh that wage war against our soul? God, would you help us to put to death the deeds of the body, to fight against all these wrong desires and instead to stoke, to feed, and to fuel the good desires that you've given us. Lord, help us to be holy in all our conduct. And God, as we live these lives amongst unbelieving family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, people at school, people in the park, the store, wherever we may be, God, would you help us live beautiful lives? Will there just be something that people look at us and say, I don't even, I don't understand it. I don't get it. But there's something about them that is so attractive. And God, may we be quick to point them to the source of that. Would we be quick and ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us? So God, we cannot live these lives on our own strength. And so we pray that you would empower us by your spirit to live these beautiful lives. And we pray, God, as we started this sermon, we ask, Lord, would your will be done? And now we close by saying, would you help us to live these beautiful lives as one way that your kingdom comes? We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.